This is Life of an Architect, a podcast dedicated to all things architecture with a little bit of life thrown in for balance. It's the end of the semester. You've exhausted all of your ideas. You're totally worn out, running on minimal sleep and too much caffeine. Your work is pinned up on the wall and it's time to give your last presentation in front of the final jury. In the grand scheme of things, does this moment even matter? Welcome to episode 112, Final Presentation in Architecture School. Today's episode is generously brought to you with support from Peterson, maker of pack-clad architectural metal cladding. Welcome to the Life of an Architect podcast. I'm Bob Borson. And I'm Andrew Hawkins. And today we're going to be talking about final juries. It's something that every architecture student will go through at least 10 times in their collegiate career. And even though each school might operate a little differently from the next, they all still operate in basically the same manner. So we're going to talk about final juries and what that means. Alike but different. Or different but the same. I don't know. Something like that. There's a phrase for that that I can't remember. I know. It's, like, and it's... it's our differences that unites us in the sameness. I'm sure there's lots of them, but we're I can't think of them at this moment. Okay, so we should take a moment, since we're talking about final juries as a topic, we should take this moment and tell people what final juries are and how final juries are different than any other time students get into a room and pin up their work. Yeah, sure, sure. So the word final is a clue. Final, that's a clue. It's the last one. Yes, hopefully. And I will say, this is interesting because I, I see this in the students' portfolios that I review. Like, I just got through reviewing one the other day for a super performer that's looking to get a, a summer job now. They wanted to talk now. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. Heat-seeking missile of getting stuff done, this guy. I know. That's <laughs> way ahead of the curve. Yeah. So, we're going through his portfolio. And, you know, I've mentioned this before. I don't really spend as much time on portfolios as people tend to think that we'll end up spending on them. I mean, I prepare. I look at it. Mm -hmm. What I want to get, I don't know what you drew and what you didn't draw. So I asked different kinds of questions. But all the projects that were in this young man's portfolio were like, this was an eight-week project. This was a six-week project. They were all very fast burns. Very short. Yeah, wow. Very, very short. And what was interesting is... I'm trying to think about, I want to say almost every studio I took in my five-year degree, we did two real projects at most in a semester. And a couple of times we just did one, one big one, complicated, lots of deliverables, lots of yeah. milestones that we hit through, not mm -hmm. six. In one semester, yeah. Now, we might have a little sidebar project that we're working, but in some ways it just supported your pinup material for the bigger presentation. It's the same project, just a different kind of task. We had some of those. Yeah. So finals, the key word that we're talking yeah. about. So it's the last one of the semester. I normally associate them with bigger projects, not just the last one, but it's, it's a big one. Is that not the case anymore? No, I think so. I think final in a sense of culmination, you've been working towards this all semester, at least in the studios that I know of, that even if there have been smaller projects, they're kind of leading up to this one. It's an amalgamation of all the things that you're supposed to have learned, and you can display them mm -hmm. in this one project, whether you worked on it for six weeks or 16 weeks, the full semester, a quarter, whatever, that it is the culmination of the semester, no matter what's behind it, but that it should showcase all the things that you've learned, air quotes, I guess, this semester. Wink, wink. Right? <laughs> yeah, however you want to call it. But it's really the, the culmination of the efforts for the semester. Yeah. And in that sense, it's final because it's the end of the semester, but it's also rounding up everything in some way or another. Okay, tell me if this is still true. It was also the most work that we produced. Yeah. Meaning when we say this is it, and all the kind of jury processes or jury moments we have before the the final, everything's a work in progress. So sometimes it might be model-centric. It might be sketch-centric. It might be version 2.5-centric. Mm, sure. I know we're going to get into this later. There comes this demarcation point in the process where you go, all right, 
this moment moving forward for X amount of days, I am in production mode. I am, this is all about me documenting and telling my story graphically through whatever I decide to put on the wall, which could be models. It could be sketches. It could be all these things, but it's coordinated. Mm -hmm. It's packaged up and presented in a way that doesn't look like it's scrap paper or stuff you just pulled off your desk. Yeah. Everything is packaged up and it's finalized in its presentation format. This is the prettiest package that you should be making in the semester. And it's the most. It's the most. The biggest package also, yeah. Hopefully you're completing everything and you're wrapping it up. We both know that's not always the case. Right. But that should be your goal, right? Or the goal for this whole thing. Okay, so let me ask you this. And we've said this on the show a few times. I already kind of know the answer, but I'm wondering if there's any kind of movement in this. And I know that as a professor, you tell your students what they need to have for this moment. As part of your final presentation, you will have drawings A, B, C, D, E, F, and G, and maybe there's a model component. That's still the case for you. Yeah, most of the time. Yeah. So we didn't have that when I was in school. There was like, so you had these moments of absolute shame. (laughs) If you had somebody who was a complete grinder and you'd have people pin up work and you're like, I only need like, I don't know, four linear feet of wall to pin up my stuff. And then the next person's like, I need the next 12 feet because I I have so much that I've prepared. And so that sort of, I don't know, eat what you kill mentality. Like I produce more work because they're producing more work. And so they produce more work because I'm producing more work and we're all trying to kill ourselves. So that we're not the person with four feet of stuff on the wall when everyone else has yeah, 12. with three drawings. Now, again, the list I give is a minimum, always a minimum. Mm. So it's like, you got to have a plane, you got to have elevation, you got to have a section. Uh, you should have an exterior 3D view of some kind, an interior 3D view of some kind. I mean, in most of my studios, it's sort of that. I don't dictate much more than that, but I want at least a conceptual basis for understanding their project. And that way, at least... When a juror comes in, they're at least looking at some things that are similar to be able to understand the project. Sure. But for me, that, that list of stuff I was giving them is like, this is a C. <laughs> this is what you do to get a C. Yeah. It's a minimum. Even sometimes, I mean, it may be a big list, but you are more than free to supplement that if it helps you explain your project, tell the story, do whatever. Okay, here's another question. And this might be tough. So here's the question I have. I've sat in on a couple of your jurors, and they're fun. Yeah. We've had some amazing moments, both good and bad, in some of these classes. Yeah. Yeah. So what I'm curious about is those classes have had a lot of kids in them. Sure, sure. So you might say length of time. We're starting at 1 o'clock, and we go till 6, and we're going to have a 15-minute break in the middle. Essentially, we got five hours, but there's... 23 people in the class. So you all get 15 minutes or whatever the case may be. Mm -hmm. And you would think that that would inform how much or what sort of information you're going to put on the wall because you can't go through it all. Yeah. Whereas in my day, you know, the good old days, we didn't have that many people in a class. I want to say like, yeah, like my last couple of years, I might have anywhere between 10 and maybe at the high end, 14 people in a class. So you're like, you, you get 30 minutes. This is how long it's going to be. And it's almost treated like a, mm-hmm. an art gallery. People would come in and I get like the entire room of a wall mm-hmm. and they would peruse things. So I might actually stack up trace paper and pin it where they could flip through 30 iterations of design studies as just kind of an amuse-bouche to whatever we actually talk about when I stand in front of whatever kind of finished work I have. So it's the point we would tear trace. Yeah. You wouldn't tear your trace like you ripped it with your teeth. They're all the same size. You would go back in and clean them up a little bit. Yeah, cut them or clean them up. Stack them up so that this plan overlaid that plan, which overlaid the next plan. And there was a presentation to the presentation. Mm-hmm. That was part of how you pinned it up on the wall, what you pinned up on the wall, how you organized the wall. That was part of it. I remember if we had cell phones that had cameras on them back then, it would have been a disaster for sure. But I probably would have better documentation because nobody took photos of this stuff. Oh, yeah. No. But I, I know that 
how we pinned up stuff on the wall. I have a cartoon set of a couple of my final juries where I said, okay, here's my wall. I laid it out. I knew what I was going to put mm-hmm. and how I was going to put it on the wall. Yeah. And nobody thinks about that stuff now. I don't think. I'd be amazed if they did. I mean, I'm, I make my students think about that stuff. Yeah, so they actually do like a little graphic layout of, okay, I'm going to put this, 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 and these are all horizontal, yep. and this one's vertical, and well, good for you. I require them to do that about a week before, or 10 days before the presentation is done. Yeah. Now, again, it's one of those things where I say you should have it done. They don't always have it done, but the plan is that they have something like that, and even if it's placeholders, like it doesn't have to be finished drawings or images, but oh, I know that. Because my plan is at eighth inch scale, it's going to be this big. And so here's the three plans and they take up that much space. And then I'm going to have some vertical piece. And I mean, I make them do that. Or let me rephrase. I request that they do that with me. (laughs) How about that? Yeah. But I would say about 80 to 90% of them do. I mean, there's always a few that don't because they just, they're too far behind or they can't decide on stuff. But most of the time I get that accomplished about the week, like really mainly right before they start heavy production mode. So that they've got an idea of which things are going to matter more. Mm-hmm. So even though I'm supposed to have some diagram, if I make it small and it's not really well represented, it's there. But if I have some giant section that really shows off my project, then that's the thing I concentrate on. And, yeah. and so that looks really finished. And yeah. it's right in the middle and everybody kind of focuses on that. Those types of things. Again, it's about what you pin up and how you pin it up. So... Let's talk about something that we probably won't need to spend much time on because it's kind of a declaratory statement. And it has to do with, and I'm wondering how much of this has changed, the amount of time that you put into getting ready for this moment in the immediate before period. Not, hey, it's in two weeks. I'm talking about it's tomorrow. (laughs) Yeah, it's in two days. Yeah, the amount of grind that all, like the reality of just what has to happen in the amount of time that you have left you know, and how that starts to resonate mm-hmm. and all nighters. Yeah. This is not a brag. I mean, I can play it both ways. I didn't do a lot of all nighters when I was in school. And that doesn't mean I didn't stay up. There's a lot of goofing off that went around. I wonder if I yeah. was Machiavellian in my behavior because I would end up working till like 12 or one o'clock. And I realized I'm not doing quality work at this point, but I like being up here. It's fun. It's a fun studio environment. And I would go yeah. and goof off with other people. And I'm like, I'm secretly like, my work's done over there. Yours is not. And I'm shooting your wheels off. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. let's hang out. Yeah, it wasn't let's like, goof off. I, I think yeah. about it from time to time. It was never my intention to do submarine their efforts because I was done with mine. So let me put a little bit of energy yeah. towards making their stuff not as good as mine. It was never that. But yeah, yeah that prep work. It was just that it was fun. Yeah. Or you have the, and you know, I wonder how much this is different now too, because I didn't do any computer drawings when I was in school. Not one. So if I had a perspective, mm-hmm. I had to yeah. do it. You know, it wasn't. Try. Yeah, yeah. I didn't have to model it and then pick my views and stuff like that. Me too. Yeah. And so, you know, and I still remember there was a guy and he was one of these guys. We all know him. If you're in the workforce now, you knew this person. There was always at least one of these person in every class. And it's like that person left to do like a work program and then didn't come back for a while because it was like working was so great. And so when they come back to school, their thought processes are different. Mm -hmm. They don't screw around in the same way that regular students, like they show up like it's a job. They're like, I'm here at eight o'clock. I work until lunch. I go eat lunch. I come back. I work until five and I go home. There's part of that that happens. And we all knew some people that were like that. This one guy. Never came to studio, like ever. And he would show up like a day or two days before the presentation, and he would bang out the most amazing drawings you've ever seen in your life. I mean, like he's drawing night perspectives and stuff with white Mm. prism. I I mean, they were staggeringly good. Now, of course, he didn't put the time. There was no rigor to what he was doing. It just, it was venereal, as I like to say. It looked great, but you would look into it. It was all surface. That's what venereal. That's the way I'm using it. It's ven- okay. it's veneer, but I got you. It's venereal. I think it works both. It works on multiple levels. Let's be okay. Right. All right. So, <laughs> if you really drilled down into a solution, it lacked that rigor of actually solving the problem. 
But if you just mm. walked by it, you're like, this guy's the next. It was awesome. Yeah. It's Alvar Alto is in our studio right now. It looked great. Yeah. And you know what? And I know we're getting to this later. Those people never got good grades. Like the, the professor knows that they just bang something out in the last minute and they're, they're trading on like some kind of graphic mm-hmm. skills that they have that these students who are less experienced or less worldly haven't quite developed yet. Yeah. Yeah. Those people. So it's days before. You're not sleeping. Did you do that? I'm pretty sure before almost every final jury, I was operating on minimal sleep. Yeah, I for sure did. And I think, did I have to be? No. Nobody ever does. Let's be honest. Because I just wasn't using my time efficiently. I mean, I was up there, you know, I'd stayed awake for two days or something at one point, but no, half of that was because I was goofing off or I wasn't, I'd draw one line and erase it and draw another line and erase it. I wasn't working efficiently and so I would stay up and be really tired. And, you know, that's, again, that really hasn't changed. You're still an inefficient worker? Is that what you're saying? No, no, not me. No, I mean, like, <laughs> yeah. The thing that's different now, I think, for students is that really we ask for more. Students today, don't get me wrong, they're still learning stuff and nothing's perfect, but we ask so much more from them than I ever got asked for as a student. Mainly because the idea is that the production is so much faster. I mean, I was never asked to draw five sections in <laughs> in a class when I was in school, but now it's not like it's a big deal for me to say, you should probably cut that model in about five different places. Yeah, sure. And let's have five sections. Sure. And so we ask a lot more of them, I think, in essence, because some of the stuff is faster to do to create the output. Modeling and all that stuff takes just as much time as when we were drawing things by hand. I think they do produce different results because there's still those people today, they can really render, they know how to render something really well. Man, they kind of get all the accolades, even though, yeah, their project may be not that great, not that well resolved, but mm-hmm. they can put a couple of really good images on the wall and people sort of kind of get amazed. So we get it. People are tired. Yep. Did you drink coffee in college? Were you a coffee drinker? No, I did not drink coffee when I was in college. Yeah, I didn't either. I was never fueled by caffeine. Oh, I was fueled by caffeine sodas, Coke or whatever. I was living off that. Jolt? (laughs) Were you a Jolt drinker? I did drink some Jolt back in the day. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think I could afford it. I looked at it like, what a luxury to have a Coke right now. (laughs) Yeah. Here I was mainlining like eight a day or something to, to keep it going. Yeah. As a little sidebar note, I learned early on that I didn't have a problem staying up all night if I didn't see the sunrise. Like if it was dark and then I went into a room where I didn't see the sunrise and I came out and it was just bright. It was like the next day. Yeah. It's fine. It didn't bother you. It was that, that transition. If I literally, I felt like I'd been beaten up. If I, if I actually like was awake and saw. Watch the sun come yeah, up. It, I, I felt terrible. And so I was like, this one of those moments you're like, don't look at it. <laughs> you know, then I didn't. And I didn't have that problem anymore. <laughs> That's so funny. Yeah. Okay. So let's build on the idea of being tired, though, because we say this as a parent. I try to share a little interesting lessons I've learned along the way, and it's the value of being rested before you have this big moment. Mm-hmm. And we could get into a grading conversation. I can't speak to it really because I've never had to grade anybody. But the idea that yeah. you know, if you have one or two projects that are semester long, this one moment is not going to be the thing that determines your grade for the class. I wouldn't think. It might contribute as part of it. It shouldn't be. Yeah. And I don't know if, yeah. if there's like a matrix and you say, here's all these milestones assigned to you, the students over the semester, and we kind of give a grade at each one of these moments, and then we kind of sum them up and average them, and, and maybe your final presentation has the same weight as one of these other singular moments. But the idea that you're prepared, you're fresh, you're sharp, you're articulate, you don't look bedraggled, you don't stink, you look like you brush your teeth, combed your hair. Yeah, and you changed clothes since I saw you last Thursday, yes. <laughs> you know, four days ago or whatever it was. Do you think it matters? I do. I still think it does. I think part of that for me is this level of professionalism, mm-hmm. really, that I expect. I've given up trying to pound that into my students to say, you should... You know, show up, dress nice, and look like you're doing something professional. 
because I feel like I'm the only person that would think that. I feel like most of the time people don't care if you're showing up. And are you talking about like other professors or just yeah, really? Yeah, okay. Well, I mean, I can see why I can see why that would be true because this is about the work. It's about the art. Yeah, yeah. but I just don't think it's a good habit. I guess to not put in a little bit of effort to how you present yourself when you're presenting your work. Sure. But that's a lesson that can be learned later on, I suppose. I don't think it's a bad thing for you to tell people, be present in the moment. And being present in the moment is taking care of, like, be clean. I don't need you to dress up in a tux or wear like a coat and a tie. I don't need that. No. It shouldn't look like you slept under your desk. No. Now, I, I will say, even if I stayed up all night and I was not rested, I still would run back to my apartment, take a shower, change my clothes, and then go back up to class. Exactly. I don't think I ever yeah. didn't do that. Didn't do that, yeah. I don't think I ever did either. I think it happens less now. But granted, I think as a whole, everything's a little more casual now. Than- you know what I will? I'll add this, because one of the... I'm trying to remember which one it was. I, I can visualize it. We were in the studio we were in. It was like eight feet wide and 20 feet deep. Oh, right. yeah. That's it was me. in that one. Yeah. And the yeah. the range of attire and crispness of your students was drastic. <laughs> From zero to 100. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I remember there was one young woman. I mean, she was on point. She had a dress on. And she was like, you could tell. She's like, mm, I am ready. Mm-hmm. And she was treating it almost yeah. like a job interview. It was extremely professional. Yeah. She was actually the one, I think, that had that. The design that had all the plants hanging down in this large Oh, atrium. in the center, I, yeah. I still remember the project. And you remember that she was dressed well, right? I mean, like... And I remember that. But I'm not sure that I remember it because it made my experience and her project and more memorable. Mm-hmm. As much as it was, she was so much more prepared in that arena than, like, almost everybody else was. I yeah. mean, there were people walking around in house shoes. Yeah. But I don't remember who any of those people were. Yeah. It's like... You get a little bit of juice. It was so different. But there's something to be said about being rested because this is your moment. And we've said this numerous times. This is your moment to be able to articulate what your design is, what you were hoping to accomplish, what your big idea is. It's not up to the juror necessarily to build your argument for you. Mm -hmm. And so you being able to articulate what you did and why you did it, probably do a better job if you're caught a couple of Z's before you came to to the jury. And nowadays, every studio in my department is supposed to, it's supposed to, doesn't mean that they enforce it, all of them, but it's supposed to be laptops closed sometime the night before. Typically, it's like 8 or 9 p.m. before. And they try to enforce that by you saying, send me your stuff by this time. Yep. Send me the PDFs of your work. Your presentation should be uploaded or emailed or whatever on the drive by 9 p.m. And I check that. And hopefully that means that you're going to go to sleep before we present at 8 a.m. Or even more sleep if we present at noon. Sure. Now, that doesn't stop students from turning in something. And then when I show up, it looks a little bit different. Because they yeah. continued to work, but... I mean, wouldn't you do that too? I'm almost guaranteed, no, I would. I'm sure, but the idea is that it's supposed to help. And for some, it does, right? They reach that point, they press print, and they're like, yeah, I'm finished. Uh, that's it. I've closed the book on it, right? You know, which is probably... Which is pretty healthy. It's very healthy. You can go, you know what? I'm going to go to the kegger tonight. I'm done, right? Yeah. I've got like five more steps to the finish line. So I'm going to go, I'm sure I've been camped up in the studio for the last week or something. Yeah. It wouldn't surprise me if that was a decision that I personally made. Like I've turned my work in, I'm going to go have a good time. I could be either one of those camps. I turned it in, I'm going to celebrate. I turned it in and I've got just a little bit more to do. And I think it would depend on how I felt about the project overall. If I was kind of like, yeah, I just, I can't do it anymore. I print, drink. Well, here's the other part to this. Back in my day, I don't have good old day syndrome. I think there's pluses and minus to now and then. But we were intimately aware of what everybody was doing because you could see it. Like everybody was at the studio. Yeah. All our drawings were on our table or you saw them being made for days and days and days before they got pinned on the wall. Their (laughs) models were sitting. Yeah, it wasn't a surprise. You saw everything. It modified your behavior and it motivated you to... Nobody wanted to be the person that was obviously the slacker. Mm -hmm. 
it's a little toxic, really. When I think about it now, I, if I put that sort of behavior in a studio environment, like a like a real, this is your job, people would say it's the most toxic environment ever. <laughs> Probably. If that's how that was structured in a professional world, like it is in the studios that I took place in college. But I look back on them mm-hmm. with great fondness, to be honest with you. Sure. So... More from Life of an Architect in just a moment. I'm sitting down today with Mike Weiss, Vice President, Sales and Marketing with Peterson, maker of pack-clad architectural metal cladding system. Mike has been in the construction industry for 29 years, starting at Ferguson Enterprises, then focusing on the metals industry for 27 years, working briefly at Reynolds Metals, and the past 23 years with Peterson. Hi, Mike. Thanks for joining me today. How are you doing? Good morning, Bob. I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. I would like to ask you about the box rib wall panels. I'm currently working on a boutique hotel project where I'm using this box panel profile because it's so clean and it's got a nice modern aesthetic. One of the other things that we didn't take advantage of, but we thought about it for a while. We were trying to find how can we articulate these surfaces differently, but trying to be cost effective in what we're trying to do, but really make a design statement. And one of the things that this system allows you to do is you can combine it with other metal wall panel systems that PackClad offers. You can absolutely mix and match a lot of these different profiles to really just add more impact to the building. These panels are typically the same depth. So as far as installation goes, things are easier to install because the panels are the same depth and they can go together a little bit better. We have the box rib, those four different profiles. We have eight other that you referred to also are high line wall panels, which also give different depths, different shadow lines. These things can be interchanged. It just makes it fun. It makes it fun for the owner, for the architect, everybody to put these things together to really put their own individual stamp on the design of the building. One of the things that we spent some time discussing was whether or not we wanted to use a hidden or an exposed fastener system. In the end, I think we're going to go with an exposed because we actually want some of that articulation to be part of the pattern that we're putting on the outside. But people have the option to do either on all these panels. They do. And I absolutely love the exposed fastener look. I really do. If you go back decades, the exposed fastener panel was the cheap option for the way to put something up on a wall. But over the past decade, at least, these exposed fastener panels have become really chic in a way. They've become a a way to design a building. You can perforate these, you can put them up on the wall and the fasteners are exposed, but they add another aesthetic to the building that a lot of architects really like. And then when you put these color choices with it, along with the different styles and patterns of exposed fasteners. I like to say that exposed fastener panels back in the day used to be like that old farm tent, just Mm -hmm. throw it up on the roof and hope it keeps water out. But now it's it's (laughs) become architecturally significant. Yeah, It's become something of its own aesthetic design option, which has just turned a lot of structures into something really beautiful. Actually, Andrew and I talked about this on one of the episodes of a few ago, and it had to do with how fast the design process moves nowadays. And during schematic design and early design development, when we're making decisions on what kind of metal cladding we use and what profile do we want, he actually jumps into BIM very, very quickly. I'm still kind of an old school guy and I tend to draw by hand a little bit, but one of the things that's helpful to us in this process is you guys have BIM files and CAD files available on all these profiles. Should somebody want to start looking at the details and how they're going to trim them out, that stuff's available. I don't want to oversell it, but it makes my life a lot easier when those files exist and I don't have to go make them. I couldn't agree more. You've been to our website, obviously. There's so many things on our website that we try to make user-friendly for everyone, the architect, the contractor, whomever's going to go. We want to make sure we have that information available and easy to get to because we want to make the process from start to finish as easy and as customer-friendly as possible. And you also mentioned earlier another area of our website that we're very proud of, our case studies. And you can go there and you can look at some of the work that's been done and get some inspiration from some of that. Our company was built on the roofing side of the business, but all of us absolutely love this shift more towards wall panels. Roofing is still a huge part of our business, but the wall panel side, is it's exciting. It just brings a whole new aspect of manufacturing into design for what owners and architects are looking for. It's an interesting segue. I didn't know when I was making my notes, 
I've used Peterson wall panels on three different building types. I did it on a retail development in a residential environment, and now I'm doing this in it's a hotel. But the opportunity that people have to use these wall panels in many, many different types of residential and non-residential applications, it's pretty exciting. And it's got to make you feel good about the opportunities that you can present to people. The opportunities are endless. And you hit on three that really are driving our business and are driving interest in our products right now. The multifamily buildings, even residential, to your point, we've seen a little bit of a growth in that, which is a little surprising, actually. You wouldn't think that residences would go more towards a wall panel type metal single skin wall panel design, but they have. And it's the same theme that keeps reoccurring. It's people want to have that impact. They want that aesthetic that's just different from traditional brick and mortar. They want to have something that people will drive up to and remember things like that. Hey, Mike, thanks for taking the time to talk about wall panels today. I appreciate it. Bob, thank you so much. I really appreciate everything. And I appreciate you using our products too. I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that. Yeah, absolutely. And for those that are listening, please visit pack-clad.com. Send an email to info at pack-clad.com. Or call 800-PAC-CLAD. You can find your local representative pack-clad.com by clicking Rep Locator at the top of the website. All this information will be on the website in today's episode, so you can find it. You don't have to try to write it down as you're driving down the road. And again, Mike, thanks again for the time. Really appreciate you sharing the passion you have and the products that you're making for us. And I'll just say till next time. All right? Yes, sir. Absolutely. Have a great day. See you, Bob. Bye-bye. Okay, so it's the end of the semester. Before we get into like the nitty-bitty bits, as a student, what should you take away from this final review? You're done. You've pinned up your work. You've grounded out, you know, whatever. You're done. You sit down, unbuckle your belt, big exhale. What next? Yeah. What do you do? What do you think? To me, I think what's really important is not necessarily focusing on the things that they're saying about your specific project, but more so about what the jury might be saying about your process or about your graphic representation or something along those lines because at that point you may not you know we're going to get into it but you may not be touching that project ever again for the rest of your life but how can you take away things that are being said about that project or about how you arrived at certain solutions that then you can take on and think about that the next time you do the next project Mm -hmm. so when people start some jurors have a tendency to start nitpicking like oh, well, this is a plan arrangement, doesn't work, and da-da-da. I mean, I personally don't get too wrapped up in that because, again, every architect, every juror has a different take on that. Mm-hmm. But but try to pull out the stuff that's more big picture, and I don't mean like big picture to your project, but big picture to architecture and the process that you're going through to create your work. Sometimes that's not easier. It all depends on the jury, but to me, that's the sort of things that you're trying to pull out of it, not specifically what did or didn't work on this project because or maybe more about why it didn't work but not that this idea didn't work if that makes sense or this idea did work what about those things the why's not the the results okay let me ask you this this only happened once when i was in college and i I think about it all the time Mm -hmm. and i should say so many many years later i'm still hung up on it yeah you know what I'll even give the guy a shout out. His name is Paul Lamb and he's down in Austin. Mm-hmm. He had a, a very quiet and profound impact on my life as a designer because of the way that he engaged with stuff. Mm. And then, but when I got my grade at the end of the semester, he had a whole form that he'd filled out and he gave me information and data and takeaways and that kind of stuff. And I wonder, does mm-hmm. it fall or should it fall? What you just said requires a lot of maturity from a student to take away big picture process information. Sure, yeah, it does. As the professor, do you help them with that? Like you're listening. So are you kind of writing down notes and saying, all right, look, Jill, here's what I think that your takeaway should be. That doesn't happen very often. I don't hear about it happening very often. It sounds like a great idea. It does. It does. I try. I try to, but it just depends. I mean, some students will come and ask, 
sometimes I try to do exit interviews in in essence with my students Mm -hmm. about, you know, here's what I think your semester was about and what you did good, what you did not good or what you need to improve on. Not really what you did bad, but where areas you need improvement as a general over the whole semester, but specific to their exact project or, or, or this final jury. Yeah. And the way that I just talked about it, I don't, I may not do that as much as I should, to be quite honest. I try to look at it as the whole semester because again, unfortunately, sometimes juries can get derailed and we spend time talking about one thing. That's true. If I got 15 minutes, it's not hard for some juror to focus on one thing for 12 of those minutes and completely blow it. And the discussion is not really helpful, which I think is a problem, but that can happen in any jury. Sure. It doesn't take much for that kind of stuff to happen. So, I would like for that to happen, but it doesn't always happen. But maybe I should add it to my list of duties. No, you know, I think you explained it in a way that actually makes more sense. I think that while there might be some value to you breaking down a final juror comments, if we're saying it's the biggest project, it's the most work pinned up, it's the culmination of what, it's kind of the same thing, but it's not really the same thing because as a professor, you have the ability to evaluate somebody's growth over those 16 weeks. Mm Mm-hmm. And so part of your exit interview commentary, I would think where the value would come from is, am I on the right path? Is my trajectory going to get me to where I hope that I land at some point and not taking just the singular moment and giving it too much value or too much weight to, am I on the right path? No, because you screwed that up, right? And you're like, but what about the other 15 weeks and four days? I mean, I'm sure I did Mm -hmm. some good stuff there. And that's kind of the approach I try to take to it. Okay. Well, that's interesting. I could probably track down Paul Lamb's grading thing that mm-hmm. he did. And that'd be kind of a cool thing to put in the show notes, I think. Yeah. I got a good grade. So I, I don't, oh, well, I don't mind sharing yes. it. <laughs> <laughs> of course, I'll show that off. I've given him credit before because he's the one that actually wrote. He goes, I haven't read this thing in 25 years. It's only been 25 years because I found it or something a long time ago. He's the one that wrote in there. Yeah. Because I was prone, as you could probably imagine, to move around. I would work and I'd get up and I'd wander and I'd go tell a joke and I'd go hang out with that person. I was, I was very social. Mm-hmm. But I, in his class, he taught me something that I couldn't articulate it unless I drew it. And it was for a project we did down in Trinity College. And I did this thing and he was kind of like, you are onto something here. And it looked like Richard Meyer did it. I mean, I did a a four by four white paneled building, but it was the shape like a Tylenol capsule. Yeah. And it had, I mean, it was a cool project. And actually I've talked about all my projects I did in his class. I did one where the model broke and when I picked it up, it had kind of rotated back into like a, a different shape that was way cooler. And so I kept it. (laughs) And you kept it. I kept it. Yeah. And I say like, I get credit for that because even though it was serendipity that led me to the shape. I at least knew enough to recognize that it was better than what I had before. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And when we had that final jury presentation, I remember one of the jurors saying, he, he pointed at my project and someone else's. He goes, these two are on a different level from everyone else in the class. He goes, I don't know what it is about these ones, but this is next level compared to everybody else. And so Paul basically gave you grades for each one of your projects and gave you like a semester grade. And he said, state mm-hmm. your desk sketch until it hurts like he's like you have to do the reps if you want to do good work if you want to get there if you want to achieve that rigor yeah in a solution you have to put in the time that was my big takeaway from him mm-hmm. but it was part of this exit semester and paperwork that we went through i still have it and i go he's the only one that mm-hmm. ever did it in any of the classes i ever took and i still have it, wow. it kind of tells you that it might have some yeah. value to, to people right yeah, and uh, yeah, some, some value to the person receiving that information. If they got an A. <laughs> the people that got B's and C's threw that junk away. This is true. They probably did. The thing I think about it is we talk about looking at it the whole semester. For me, it's it's gotten easier to do because now I've taught every studio in that entire curriculum. Mm-hmm. It's easier for me to gauge where students are at in that overall trajectory because I've taught every level of that trajectory to be able to kind of say, well, before next semester, maybe you should work at doing this or you should think about working on this or this is really good, but bring this thing up or keep thinking about this or whatever. Um, It makes it easier 
because I've, I've been spread all over that place. I'm sure there's <laughs> a little there's bit. got to be value in that for sure, right? Yeah, there is some, yeah. So it's done. So we're still kind of on the topic of it's done. You sit down. What do people do with the work? Do you think, and I'll put a couple like little A, little B to it. So little A is, I guess it depends on where you are in terms of what year you're in studio. Like if it's your first year, you might treat your final project differently than if it's your fourth year or your sixth year or something like that. Yeah, for sure. So what do you archive it? Do you burn it? Do you like record it for portfolio purposes? You know, I've done all of those. Yeah. I've done one of those three things with every project I ever did in school, right? For the most part. Uh, I've never burnt one. I've smashed one. I've smashed the model before. to get. I'm kind of counting that as the same thing. You destroyed it. Get that satisfaction. Yeah. I've had projects that I just tipped into the trash can for sure. <laughs> yeah. You know? But the difference is, is, and I think that your answer would be different than maybe than if you taught at a school like where I went at UT, since I had a five-year professional degree, I was done. I was going into the work world. Yeah. Your students, when they're leaving you, for the most part, actually, that's not true either. But like the four, two kids, mm -hmm. they have a moment at the end of that fourth year where they're having to take their work and build a portfolio to apply for graduate school. Graduate school. Yeah, and you and I had a conversation that most of these kids don't use all four years. They use three and a half because their stuff had to be submitted before their last semester. Mm -hmm. We've seen it. You and I have both seen it, that there are students that are like, well, I already got into school fill in the blank, so they just don't fail. I'm just going to have a good time in my last semester here. Do the minimum. Do the minimum yeah. and put yeah. kind of junk on the wall because it's never going to go anywhere. I'm pretty sure I called somebody out about that. This is a character issue right here. It's possible. But I've also, here professionally, there was a young woman who graduated from UTA, University of Texas in Arlington, which, you know, 45 minutes from Dallas. Mm -hmm. She graduated with her four-year, came and worked with us at Boca Powell for a couple of years. Her name was Victoria. And then she's, I think she's in Michigan getting her graduate degree now. I think that's where she ended up. Mm -hmm. And I want to tell you that she would be, because I'm always first to arrive and last to leave a lot of times. She was up there redrawing a lot of her undergraduate projects to include in her portfolio for submission for graduate school. So she was yeah. adding to them. She was redrawing them. She's like, mm, I can do this better now than I did four years ago. Yeah. And so she did. Cheating a little bit. Yeah. But is it though? Because what she's doing is still a measure of what she can do. This is true. I, I mean, I'm always on the fence about that because... It may not show growth. It doesn't show progress. If everything looks like your final year in school. And you say, well, this is what I did my third year of school or my fourth year of school. And, but I've been working for three more years and I went back and fixed it all. My skill level has completely changed. Yeah. So it's really not... I mean, it's an idea you had then, but it's not the production work that you did then. And that's where I sort of feel like I get iffy on it. But it is production work that they're going to get from This her. is true. I, I agree. Now, I should say, it sounds like I'm throwing her under the bus. I'm not. She was delightful. And I don't know that she actually redesigned anything. Yeah. But I do know that she she rebuilt part of her portfolio to have it look the way she wanted it to look as of this moment. Yeah. And I never took issue with it because I go, well, the school's accepting her for what her skill level is. Like, they're like, what product are we getting from you? Sure. So- is the growth over time in a portfolio for a graduate school admission more important than the moment that they receive it? And this is what my, this is what you get. Yeah. If you no, get me, I don't if think you accept so. me to your school, this is what you're going to get. I don't yeah, think I don't so. think so either. So I don't have a problem with it. The only reason I have a problem is you just show what you're doing now and don't go back. Don't present this as a second year project or a third year project or something. Show the stuff you've been working on now or the most recent work. Because again, you know, some of my students, I say, look, your portfolio for grad school could be two projects and it could be the most recent two projects that you've done so that they're the most advanced and show your current skills the best. You don't really have to show progression. Mm -hmm. Some schools may want that and some schools may requirement. They have kind of different requirements for stuff, but if there's no requirements and you're applying to grad school, there is no reason you should have a project from your first year in that portfolio. I mean, like, just don't. No, you don't no. need it. Yeah. <laughs> so that kind of idea, I mean, we're kind of getting around to it now. But if it's something like a first-year project, 
there's no really need to go back and redo it or even a second year project, especially in a five year program. But if it's a four, two or four year program or something like that, even I think the idea of reworking things happens later in your educational career. And even then, I don't know that it's designed, but it's more like graphics. If you learn how to do things better graphically, you learn a new Photoshop trick or you learn some new skills or someone said, well, the line weight on this image that you put out, is not great. Go, you can go back and fix that stuff. Definitely go do that. But don't go redesign the whole project. I don't know that any of it is worth that. Yeah. Because I'm assuming you still have time. Don't worry about redoing it in that sense. Fix the things you can fix, but don't completely overhaul a project. That's not a an efficient use of your time. I will say that I remember telling a number of your students, a number might be three or four, that I have the whole, this was great, this was not great, and this is an area of importance or focus or mm-hmm. additional work. Yeah. They always try to find one good thing, one bad thing, something to grow upon. Yeah. There were a handful of students that I said, if you were to go back and continue working on this project, sure, this should be something that you would focus on. That was something also. And I didn't say that to the projects that were spare or just kind of middle of the road. Yeah. So if you were in Andrew's class and I said that to you, it's because I thought you had a good project. And I think that just if you had a little bit more time, you could like complete the vision or cross the finish line or whatever the case may be. Yeah. It's meant as a good thing. It's that it's worth maybe putting a little bit more time in because some of these projects, they're going to live for a while. Yeah, for sure. It might be part of your application to get in graduate school. It might be in your portfolio for you to actually get a job along the way. Mm-hmm. We do have a post that talks about the value and role that portfolios play. And I'm like, after three years, after you're out of school for three years, your portfolio should never see the light of day again. Yeah. Not your schoolwork. I don't care about your schoolwork when you're three years out of college. I'm not asking you to design mobile habitat pods yeah. on the dark side of the moon, right? That's not what I need anymore. A floating museum in the middle of the Antarctic. That's right. For polar bear patron. <laughs> <laughs> There's some give and take there, I think, about what you should do as far as should I continue or should I change things? Again, it's based on the situation and sometimes, yeah, maybe it is. Do a little bit more just to push it over the edge. Don't go back and redraw and redesign your first semester studio project. That was eight weeks. Definitely not. Let it go. Realize what you learned from it is what you learned from it and, and move on. Okay. I have one more question that's particular to this topic that I want to chat about. And it has to do with, do the jurors' comments have an impact on your grades? Or does it even matter? Does it move the needle at all with the professor? And for me, I say no. And for most of the people that I know, I would say no. Most of my colleagues that I talked to about, the answer is no. And as we kind of mentioned, sometimes... No offense to jurors. And I mean, I've had them in my reviews where they're my friends and colleagues and they totally missed the point or missed, you know, missed the whole mark because they can get. Not me though, right? Not me. I've always killed nah, it. Sure, sure, sure. Because <laughs> you can just get hung up on the wrong thing. Another juror points something out and you're like, oh yeah. And you kind of go down this rabbit hole together of redesigning the stairs and you waste your 20 minutes of time talking about that, which, okay, great, but. That's not going to change the way I view your project and your time. Again, like we said earlier, that this is a tiny snapshot of what you're doing in a sense of what the jury presentation is. Now, not all the work that you pinned on the wall and all the work that you've gotten done, that does matter. That does impact your grade because you should put your best effort out there and put up all the stuff that you can and give it a good college try, as they would say, as the old people would say, right? Put it up on the wall and get it out there and get it done. But the discussion that happens after that is really not a critical component of anything. Now, while I say the final presentation is a 30 or 40 percent of your final grade in maybe in my class, that's not about the conversation we have. It's about the work and the level of completion that you get to. It's that. Yeah, it's the eight or 10 or 12 weeks worth of work. Yes. That led up to this pinup. Yeah, but it's not the conversation that we have typically. Because there have been times where in the department I wasn't allowed to choose the people that came to our interview. Mm-hmm. They got assigned. And I've had some of those people come in and sort of trash my students' projects. They didn't even like the idea of the project that I gave you. right? So that's not your fault. right? That they think right. your Arctic floating polar mirror museum is stupid. That doesn't really matter. And they, you know, they go off on a tirade about that. So, And that doesn't impact your grade. So their comments, they're not an impact. 
hopefully they're for your benefit to think about things in a different way. Yeah. Because I always think it's good to hear something else. But that 30 minutes to one hour at the end of 15 weeks worth of work has about that much impact on your grade. I mean, not even that. None. Because of the hundreds of hours you've put in it to get to that point. You know, that's that one piece of information is not anything that ever... I, I didn't know that when I yeah. was in school. Oh, I didn't either. I thought... It was live or die. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's a test at the end. All the work I've done is like my studying. And then the jury presentation, that's my test. And if I fail the test, I'm going to get a bad grade. That's how it felt, to be honest with you. For me, too. I mean, I don't disagree. It was like, like an oral exam. I'm doing this and you're asking me questions. If I don't have the right answers, I'm hosed. You know, everything is for nothing. I do think that a juror can influence the professor and push you from a high B to a, a low A, right? Like if somebody comes in, they're just like next level. You're like, hmm, yeah. I mean, obviously as a professor, yeah. you have to respect that person, right? But if you're inviting sure. these people, I'm assuming that you have some level of respect for them in the first place. Sure. And if they come in and they're just like, you know, this person, A, B, C, and D, they're clearly your best students. And you're like, yeah, they kind of are my best students. And you're like, sorry, E, you're next here now. <laughs> you know? Maybe. <laughs> maybe. Maybe. I think the funny thing, I mean, I'll be honest about it, that when I have these juries and when it's colleagues like you and other people that I invite and things get pointed out, there are times where I take it probably more personally. Like, Yeah, we've talked about that. I'm like, oh, man, that's a good idea. I can't believe I didn't even, you know, that didn't cross my mind. Or like, they point something out. I'm like, you're right. I should have caught that. Or there's part of me that takes those comments from the jurors about my students work more to heart probably than my students maybe even do. Or than, definitely than my students should. But I, I get like, oh, man, that's good. Or that was bad. Or I missed that. And I can't believe I missed talking to them about that sort of point. So there's times where I take, I take it personally when I hear them talk about student stuff. Not everybody does, but I do, I think. I would venture a guess that almost no student has ever thought of it in that capacity. If they get baked, if they get destroyed in a jury, that might actually make the professor feel bad, you know? <laughs> probably not. Yeah, I know, probably not. But I mean, I'll be honest, like it does sometimes. Yeah. Granted, I don't. If you're, if you're a student and you didn't do the work and you get baked, I don't feel bad about that. Sure. But- if you're somebody that put a lot of effort in and I felt like, yeah, man, we're pushing and we're doing good. And then somehow you come in and not as good as I was thinking, or you pointed out some things that I realized, oh yeah, that was maybe not the best decision for us to, for me to push you towards. Sure. Then I feel bad. <laughs> as you should. It doesn't impact your grade, but it just, I feel bad, right? I'm like, oh. <laughs> well, look, there is additional information available on the Life of an Architect website on this topic. It's kind of peripherally and much more in the weeds to a final jury. So we have episode 98 was dedicated to architectural presentations. And so it talks about stuff like how you're not your work and jurors kind of have their own little pet issues that they then try to overlay on your project and it might be irrelevant. You need to not listen to them all the time. They're not always right. There's a lot to the actual presentation part that we cover in episode 98. But I also wrote a post seven years ago titled How to Survive Architecture School Juries. And I read it before we started this episode. It's still solid. I stand behind everything that's in that post. So if you're curious or you want to kind of get a feel for how it might work or what people are thinking, you should check out episode 98 and How to Survive Architecture School Juries. There'll be links in the episode, so you don't have to try to remember it. Yeah. So what that means is it's time for this episode's What's the Rank? I'm pretty excited about this one. <laughs> Are you? Yeah. You know no. why? No. There's some obvious answers for this one. You think? I can't decide. I've got a couple of obvious ones, but then, I don't know. I'm still working on it. Really? I'm good. It's going to be on the fly here, one of them. Well, in a way, it's kind of your question. I know. But I gave you a bunch, and this was not the one that I'd been thinking about most of the day. <laughs> well, you gave me the... Well, let's just tell people what it is. Yeah. So, the drum roll, please. We're doing the best three dinner sides. Yes. And you gave me the option of the worst three dinner sides. And I was I like, did. let's go positive. Let's do it. 
Let's switch it up. This is going an upswing here. Yeah, we're throwing people off. Sometimes we're negative, sometimes we're positive. And I felt if we're going to talk about final juries, we need to end it with something positive. Sounds good. Makes sense. All right. So I'm still going to say this is your question, which means I'm going to do you the courtesy of going first. You get to go first. And then that way you can kind of hear what my answers are. And you can go, uh, yeah, I agree. That is number three or whatever. Okay. Mm-hmm. My number three best dinner sides. Now we should say dinner. That means it's not like waffles is not a side. You can eat that as a side for dinner, I guess. But that's not what we're talking about here. Yeah. I mean, I'm thinking more traditional dinner sides. Yeah. Yes. We all know what we're talking about when we say dinner sides. Okay. Yeah. So everyone settle down if they're thinking, oh, I didn't get to include waffles, whatever. <laughs> okay. My number three is asparagus, like grilled asparagus. Interesting. That's not even on my radar, but interesting. Interesting. Oh, it's great. Well, first off, we actually have a joke in my family and it's crude. We, we call it dinner and a show. When you get asparagus, ah. because you eat it now, you get a little something later. <laughs> <laughs> and we all know, we all know what I'm talking about. Do you know that doesn't happen to everybody though? No, technically it happens to everyone, but only a percentage of the people can actually smell it. Really? Interesting. The odor is always there, but not everybody can smell it. It's the olfactory, not the odor. Yeah, because, and I, I won't say who this was, but there was a woman that I worked with. She was a bit of an overshare. I loved her. She was great. And I didn't have asparagus growing up. I think the first time I had asparagus, I was probably, man, I mean, it would have been like 2005 or something. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, how old that maybe wow. 38 yeah. years old or something <laughs> like that? Your late 30s. Yeah. Never had asparagus before. And my wife bought some fresh and she made it. And I looked at it. I was kind of like alien fingers. This doesn't look like something I'm going to want to eat. And I <laughs> ate it and I thought, this is amazing. This, this is so delicious. I love this. This is so, this is so great. Well, mm-hmm. at the same time, we were renovating the house that we were living in and we had redone all the bathrooms. Like this is like in the same moment we redid the bathrooms. They put in new toilets. I ate asparagus. I went and used the new toilet and I came back and I was like, I think there's something wrong with the toilet. Like, I think I'm getting sewer gas up the toilet. <laughs> I'm always like, that sounds bad. And I go, I'll have the contractor take a look at it. Not having any idea that this was a thing. Oh my gosh. Then the next day I'm like, hey, can we have more asparagus? I loved it. Like I've never ate it before. I was like, I want more asparagus. And then I'd say, contractor told me he looked at the toilet. He, everything looks fine, but I just used it and there's still something wrong with it. Like this went on for days because I kept eating asparagus every day when I first had it. <laughs> and so to circle around, I was telling that story to this woman that I worked with and apparently... She can smell it and her husband cannot. Mm. And they were taking a shower together and she caught him in the shower. He went to the, he went number one in the bathroom in the shower while they were showering together. She's like, did mm. you just do that? And he's like, what are you talking about? She's like, I can smell it. Like <laughs> he didn't know. So he totally got caught. That's terrible. So everybody's body processes it the same way, but not everybody can smell it. So I love it. It's one of my favorite vegetables to eat, actually. Asparagus. 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 Not the smell, but the asparagus. Dinner show, though. I still, it still <laughs> makes me giggle. I'm not going to lie. That's funny. That's funny. So that's my number three. Okay. My number three is, this was the tough one. I had a hard time coming up with number three, is broccoli rice casserole. Okay. As a like side. Rice. Yeah, like rice, cheese, broccoli. I like that. I mean, if it's done well, it's good. Yeah. Agreed. But it's not one I get very often, but if it's one of the choices that I could have. You'd get it more often. I would get it more often. If it was available to me, I don't know when I would pass it up. Yeah. It's not on my list, but only because I didn't think of it. Yeah. Now, we always have it at Thanksgiving. Yeah, I was going to say, it's always at Thanksgiving. And it's my number two favorite thing to eat at Thanksgiving. Number one is also on my list here. Oh, interesting. Yes. But yeah, at Thanksgiving, I'll eat, you know, four to... 12 helpings of it or whatever. Because it's, yeah, it's good. I like it. Yeah. I'm with you. The holidays is kind of the only time that it really comes up. And maybe that's why it popped in my head because the holidays are coming up here pretty soon. It's something to look forward to. Broccoli rice casserole. That's right. right. That's right. I'm with you. Yeah. Okay. Number two on my list. This is one that I don't know how this could not be on your list of best dinner side. 
corn. It's it's got the juice. Oh, as, God. I love corn. Do you not love I, corn? I hate corn. No, I do not eat. I don't corn. understand I how corn. that's possible. I don't like corn. It's flavorless to me. I don't oh, like corn. You're crazy. No. You know, this is just another nail in your culinary ranking coffin. Let me rephrase. I like corn on the cob. I will eat corn on the cob. But just like loose corn or whatever, not my thing. I like cornbread. I like corn tortillas. Hold on. If I took corn on the cob and I just cut the corn off and gave it to you, you're like, I'm out. It was good before you cut it off, but now I'm out? Uh, I don't know. Because sometimes like... I like corn on the cob that's come off of a fire grill or something. If you're boiling it in your house, mm-hmm. I don't really like that corn on the cob either. I guess it's like boiled corn. Mm-hmm. I don't. That's the thing. Like, I don't like boiled corn, which is how most loose corn is cooked. I might even be more apt to eat it if it was in some kind of corn and rice casserole. But but even then, I wouldn't oh, do God. it. I just, I'm not a big fan of corn. And you're like, because you like rice and cheese. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> not because I like corn. <laughs> Yeah, corn's not on my list, man. No. Everybody in my house loves corn. Interesting. We get those, like, steam bags. Oh, yeah. Put some butter and pepper on it, man, you're rocking and rolling. Uh, Okay. Not corn's not for me. Okay. But, hey. Okay. I think you're wrong on that. I want to hear from the people. That's fine. That's fine. (laughs) I mean, you are not the only person that gives me flack about corn. Yeah, it defies logic. I don't know. I'm just not a corn person. I don't know. Okay. Number number two for me is mac and cheese. I like mac and cheese as a side. You know, you and the cheese. I know. Is, is that what this is? Well, no, but there's there's a theme. But hold on, you gave me grief for choosing vanilla ice cream with stuff in it. I know, right? For all mine, and you're basically choosing cheese with stuff. No, in it. no, 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 I'm not. So far, <laughs> yeah, you are. That's the broccoli, rice, and cheese casserole. Now mac and cheese. Okay, well, that's fine. I'll break with number one, but I like a good mac and cheese. Now, don't get me wrong. You can get terrible mac and cheese. That's the only bad thing about it is that you can get like bad mac and cheese, whether it's either over runny or it's really, really dried out because it's overbaked. So it's an iffy thing, but I like good mac and cheese as a dinner side. All right. <laughs> Wacky. The fact that you don't like corn. You know, I get the mac and cheese. I do. Yeah. I, I don't love it. I don't hate it. I'd never seek it out. I could see you being, yeah, that's about what I expected from you. Actually, you know what? I didn't expect corn at all. So far, your choices have blown me out of the water, to be quite honest. <laughs> so Now, here's the thing. Here's the thing about mac and cheese. If you get 10 people to make mac and cheese, nine of them will be tolerable at best, <laughs> and one will be good. Maybe so. Maybe so. Yeah. Because not everybody bakes theirs, and some people just make it in a pot and you get it. I mean, it's just, it's all over the place. It's too, it's too devil may care. <laughs> right? You just don't know what you're going to get. <laughs> okay. That's fair, but I'm assuming I'm getting good mac and cheese. That's what I want. Okay. That's reasonable. Okay. Number one. This is an easy one. Okay. If you don't have the same number one as me, I don't even know if I can continue doing this podcast with you. Oh, my God. Okay. You ready? Yeah. It's got to be mashed potatoes and gravy. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Score. Score. That's my number one, too. I was like, yeah, that's it, right? Mashed potato. I was worried for a second that you were going to say stuffing because you were talking about Thanksgiving, but. I don't like stuffing. Yeah. Mashed potatoes all the way. There's nothing better. Yeah. And you know why mashed potatoes is the grand poobah of dinner sides? There are dishes that if it doesn't have mashed potatoes as a side, they're not worth eating the main course. <laughs> exactly. For sure. Right? Yeah. Yeah. 100%. Like if you serve me chicken fried steak and you don't give me mashed potatoes, I might flip the table on you. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Or like to roast, me like pot roast, 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 beef. roast beef. Yeah. If I don't pot, get a good. Yes, yeah, of course. No. If there are no mashed potatoes, forget it. Oh, yeah. I'm done. It's... What are you wasting my time? <laughs> yeah. Really? You should not have cooked anything. <laughs> exactly. I'm with you. I'm with you. Yeah. All right. Well, that's funny. So. Our three and two are on different planets, but we came together on number one. Yeah, yeah. But see, my, my the link that I was going to get to mind, mine are all carbs. They're all carb intensive. Oh, I noticed. I want carbs for the sides. I don't want vegetables. <laughs> You're in the like light tan to white is your color <laughs> range on your dinner sides. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. You know, if I asked my wife this, uh, number three would be a salad. Number two would be a salad. Number one would be mashed potatoes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I thought about putting like a little dinner salad on there, but I have to be in the right mood to want a salad with stuff. I like a good, I like a good salad, but it's really more about the dressing. Yeah, for sure. 
And again, if, if there's too much on it and it's like everything's wet, it's gross. Even if it's like the most amazing dressing ever. Yeah. I don't want that. I sound super fussy. If you put it in front of me, chances are pretty good. I'm going to eat it. Mm-hmm. I'm not that picky. I'll just be judging you silently in my head. <laughs> but here we go. Here's the age old question for mashed potatoes. Brown or white grape? Uh, ooh, that's a tough one. Mm. I will say the vast majority of time it's white gravy. Mm. Yeah. So when we have, we have a couple big moments of mashed potatoes in our house mm-hmm. and the vast majority of the gravy we eat is brown gravy. Brown gravy. Yeah. Yeah. That's the direction we do. And you know what? It's fantastic. I have no, I wouldn't throw a fit at all, but if I'm having chicken fried steak, I don't want brown gravy. Yeah. It's got to be cream gravy. That's funny. I like both with chicken fried steak, actually. But, I mean, I prefer brown gravy most of the time. Because, again, when I'm at home, I make pot roast and mashed potatoes. That's brown gravy. I'm not putting white gravy on pot roast. Even on that, if I made a pot roast and mashed potatoes, I'd be using the au jus. I wouldn't actually make a flour-based gravy. Gravy, gravy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, but, I mean, to me, it's still similar, I guess. But Yeah, so... I'm not particular if it's brown, juice, or white, but yeah. each one of them has a has a place. A place. Yeah. I can see that. My preference is typically brown. Well, if Thanksgiving, brown gravy. There's oh, yeah. like I will t- flip the table if you bring it. If there's, you know what? White gravy. Truth is, we yeah. we make it. Yeah, we make it. We make sure I got that covered. Yeah. I got you. Okay. Well, there you go. Let's call that a wrap. We've been at it a little bit. Thank you for being with us today for episode 112, Final Presentations in Architecture School. Special thanks to our sponsor, Peterson, which manufactures pack-clad architectural metal cladding systems. Visit pack-clad.com to learn more. In addition, special thanks to our media partners, Building Design and Construction, for their ongoing support of the Life of an Architect podcast. Want to get every new episode automatically downloaded? Make sure to hit that follow or subscribe button on your podcast player of choice so you can get alerted every time we publish a new spooktacular episode. While you're there, please take a few moments to leave us a five-star final juries are brutal but valuable rating. To get even more content, head over to lifeofanarchitect.com for blog posts, links, and info about this judgmental episode and all the website has to offer. You can even add your own voice and join the conversation. Thanks so much for tuning in. Take it easy, everybody. Cheers.